You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom Wood brought us the third message in a series he's titled, Generation Restoration. Let's check it out. Well, good morning. Great to see everybody. So glad that you're able to spend this part of your weekend here with us at Word of Life. Um, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Is that okay? I've broken a personal record this morning. I've got more pages in my notes than I've ever had in ever sermon I've ever given anywhere ever. So cancel your lunch plans. I'm joking. I, I really have got more pages of notes, but that shouldn't add to the runtime. But I should stop this preamble waffle right now. All right. So there's a verse uh, in the New Testament. I've read it for uh, the church for probably the last month or so that I just cannot shake off right now. There's a verse that I think is highly relevant to us as a culture, for us as a people, for the particular time in history that you and I are alive and that we're a part of this current generation. I think it's a desperately needed message. And Jesus has been extending the same invitation for 2,000 years, and that same invitation is extended to you and I today. Matthew 11, verse 28, then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, don't you see so much weariness in the world today? Maybe for yourself or maybe in the lives of those around you. Don't you see people carrying heavy burdens? Don't you watch every single day people just weighed down by life? People feeling crushed under the pressure of everything they face on a daily basis? Don't you see people struggling to make sense of life? Don't you see people confused and angry? Don't you see half of the country blaming the other half of the country for being divisive? Don't you see a country and a culture that is more complicated and divided, more so than anything else we thought possible just 20 years ago? And to us, to 21st century America, to central New York, Jesus says, I will give you rest. In me, you will find rest for your souls. I can't shake this invitation. I can't ignore this promise. I mentioned this verse a few weeks ago, and I shared a message considering the role of repentance. And the main thought in that message a few weeks ago was the call to repent has the promise of hope. Repentance is an opportunity to leave destruction and pain behind, to abandon sin, to find forgiveness in Jesus, and to learn a new way to live as a part of God's kingdom. Repentance has gained a reputation for being all about apologizing and being caught doing something wrong and being remorseful. And while that's all accurate and true, it's only half the story because repentance also includes the promise of hope. Yes, repentance means to feel regret and to be sorry and acknowledge wrongdoing. But it is also filled with hope that how it is today isn't how it has to stay. Repentance is the promise of a different future than the one we may be heading for. Repentance is the promise to leave the old behind and embrace the new. Repentance is the promise of being a part of God's eternal kingdom. And this is why repentance should inspire hope within us. Churches around the world have proclaimed to their community that they have a message of hope. When we share the gospel of Jesus, we're pointing to hope. And we have a responsibility to this generation. We have to faithfully share the good news of Jesus. We have a commission from heaven to tell people that are hurting that they can find rest in Jesus. 
I read this verse a few weeks ago and it stuck with me and I wanted to consider it with the church today. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 5, starting verse 10. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. Now this verse starts with, in his kindness. We could also translate it to, in his grace. This is because his goodness is what anchors this verse, because of his goodness. And we're going to look at the rest of the verse and consider what it means for us to live as as we figure out our life of faith as believers. But please remember that this verse is anchored. It is built on this promise that in God's goodness, and it goes on, because of his grace and kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. We can get just a glimpse of God's glory here on earth, but there is an eternity. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, won the victory, and began establishing the kingdom on earth. One day, that work will be completed. The church has been anticipating the return of Christ for 2,000 years, and whether by death or by Christ's return, eternal glory awaits all believers. And with all this in mind, because of his kindness, your call to eternal glory, Peter goes on, so after you have suffered a little while. As I read that, that's a downer. We talked about his kindness. We talked about eternal glory, and now, after you have suffered a little while. We've gone from talking about God's kindness, eternal glory, and now we're talking about suffering. Our reality today means we know all about suffering. Our life in a broken creation has led to suffering of all shapes and sizes. There is no one who has escaped totally from pain and trouble. Peter wants the believers to know that suffering is not to be misunderstood as the derailment of God's promises. Pain and difficulty does not mean God is no longer present and at work in our lives. Just because life is tough or unfair or painful doesn't mean God's promises don't stand, and it doesn't mean that you're on the outside of God's plans and purposes. Peter reminds us that suffering is temporary, but God's glory is eternal. For the believers that Peter was writing to, he addressed some very scared people who are facing deadly persecution. The previous verses in this chapter describe the devil prowling like a lion looking for who he can devour. For us today, it's important to remember that this verse, and of course, the whole of Peter's letter, it was written to hurting people. And to hurting Peter, uh, hurting people, Peter writes, in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will. After a little while, he will. Now we're going to look at what it is that he will do, but I don't want to skip over the he will. The Greek scholars tell us that he will means he will personally. God is personally invested and committed to being personally involved with his people. God is personally and directly at work in the lives of his people in the midst of suffering. In this generation, with so much hurt and pain, those that are being invited to find hope and repentance and return to God, please know he will. He will personally and directly get involved in all the comings and goings of your life. Peter goes on and uses four verbs to tell us what he will do. And we can receive these four verbs as four promises. That God will restore, support, strengthen, and place you on a firm foundation. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. Now, many 
English Bible translations translate place you on a firm foundation as establish, and that is a faithful uh, translation of the Greek, and I'll likely switch between place and establish today. But these four verbs are four assurances and four promises that we are told that despite the suffering that might be experienced today, God is committed to be directly involved, which means he will restore, he will support, he will strengthen, and he will establish. The promise is not life will be easy breezy or a cakewalk, but the promise is God will restore what's been lost. The promise is not following Jesus will be all sunshine and roses, but the promise is he will support and sustain you during the worst days of your life. The promise is not that there will never be any opposition that you'll face, but the promise is he will give you the strength you need to overcome. The promise is not you'll never have a single doubt or fear or moment of frustration or a moment of sin ever again, but rather the promise is he will place you and establish you firmly and give you deep roots so when things that should destroy you and destroy your faith, you remain deep-rooted and planted and steadfast in him and in his promises. He will restore, he will support, he will strengthen, and he will establish. To think about how important this all is, consider what happens when the opposite is true. Without restoration, what's been lost is lost forever. Without restoration, joy that is missing will always be missing. Without restoration, what is broken and damaged can never function again. Without support, feelings of being alone are accurate and permanent. Without support, we are limited to our own abilities. Without support, we suffer the price of our shortcomings with no relief. Without support, we either struggle or we give up. Without being strengthened, whenever life brings one of many inevitable challenges, we would have to stand and fight alone. Without being strengthened, everything that is stronger than us has the potential to turn and destroy us. If we're not established, we're consigned to drifting, trying our best to find our way. If we are not established, we worry if the current that forces us to drift with popular opinion is going to keep us safe. If we're not established, our sense of purpose, meaning, and destiny are all shallow, small, and constantly prone to change. In the face of this, we should remember the promise that because of God's grace, that though life brings suffering, we can be confident that God is restoring, that he is giving us support, that he is giving us the strength we need to get through another day, and he will establish us and give us the stability and place us firmly in him. An important reminder for us today, the promises of God are life-changing. The promises of God are life-changing. And this is so simple, I even questioned whether it was worth saying, but the very thought of life-changing is something that's been rolling around in my head this week. We promise as a Christian church, as preachers, as people who believe the authority of the Bible, we unashamedly declare the message of Jesus is truly life-changing, both here on earth and into eternity. But if you don't want your life to change, you have the freedom to stay where you are. If you don't want to follow Jesus, there's no reason to think he's going to force you. There's certainly no reason to think this church is going to force you. We can even read in the Bible that during the earthly life of Jesus, crowds and crowds of people came to listen to him teach. They were amazed by his miracles, but many never made the strong commitment to follow him and have their lives truly changed. The question I would put to you today Do you want your life to be changed? You may not be in poverty. You may not have a major life crisis. Or you might be in the middle of the absolute worst time of your life. Either way, do you want your life to change? Are you done 
Have you tried the promises of the world and found out the hard way that it doesn't pay off? Are you tired and worn out from watching so many loved ones destroy themselves? Are you done being angry and frustrated? Are you done burning yourself out just to fit in? Are you ready to stop hating people and ready to embrace a life of forgiveness? Are you done hurting and hiding the pain? Are you done looking for people to blame and people to be angry at? Are you exhausted from trying to have it all figured out? Are you ready to stop freaking out and being driven by peer pressure? Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary, all of you who are tired and exhausted and burnt out, all of you who are sick of living like this, and those of you that carry heavy burdens, the heavy pressure of the world, the heavy pressure of other people's expectations, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. This generation, our generation, is more tired, exhausted, stressed, weighed down, anxious, confused, aimless, and addicted, more so than any generation that has ever gone before us. And as the church, we have a message of hope. We have the good news of Jesus, which is the greatest news the world could ever know. We have the chance to repent and leave behind the destructive things we've been a part of. Because of Jesus, our past doesn't have to determine our future. We have the ultimate message and the true remedy to the hurt and pressure that so many are weighed down by. But how do we rescue people that don't agree that they need rescuing? How do we love people who believe we hate them? How do we have a voice around ethics and morality when the world is telling us to shut up? How do we help people undo the lies of the world when the lies are being screamed from all corners of culture? How do we proclaim that we have a life-changing message to a world that doesn't trust us? How do we disciple people so that they're strong enough to swim against the tide of culture? How do we preach a message of forgiveness and grace to a community that doesn't think they've done anything wrong? How do we say, love your neighbor when people hate each other if they voted differently from them? This, I believe, is the tension that the modern church is called to navigate. We are living in a generation that is hurting and suffering. And so to this generation, we declare that in his kindness, God has called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you've suffered for a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. Now I'm following along. Um, we have a Bible plan here at the church that we've invited everyone and anyone to be a part of that's walking through the New Testament over a course of a year, and I'm a part of that plan. Uh, I'm also doing a separate plan that's gonna go through the Old Testament. So the Old Testament plan that I'm going through right now uh, has got me in the book of Exodus. And this is the book of the Bible that introduces us to the character of Moses, which is a great name for your second-born son. Um, it's the story of how God used Moses to deliver the nation of Israel out of slavery. After sending a series of plagues to Egypt and then finally by parting the Red Sea in two, the whole nation of slaves were able to escape into freedom. The freed slaves were told about a promised land, and this is the same promised land that was promised to their ancestor Abraham hundreds of years earlier. The second half of the book of Exodus details life in the wilderness as the Israelites journey towards the promised land. It's in the second half of the book that Moses receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and later on when Moses receives the plans to build the tabernacle, and the tabernacle which was in essence a huge tent that was built to serve as a mobile temple. 
And the tabernacle was a place where the priest could serve and perform sacrifices and lead people in worship. It's in the book of Exodus that we start to see the newly freed slaves struggle in their newfound freedom. And not only am I reading the book of Exodus, I also just finished reading a book that looks at the life of Moses. I think we have a picture of the book there. It's called Moses, Great Life Series by Charles Swindle. An excellent book. If you're looking for a good read, I highly endorse it. And if reading the book of Exodus and reading the book about Moses wasn't enough, the kids have really been into the movie Prince of Egypt lately. So this has been on my mind a lot. So with this whole notion of these four promises that we read from 1 Peter, that God will restore, he will support, he will strengthen, and he will establish us. I turned to the book of Exodus and I started to ask, how can we see these promises unfold in the book of Exodus? Now, I don't believe that when the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write this verse, that Peter had the book of Exodus on his mind. I'm making the connection simply because as we read these promises, it was inspiring for me to consider how we can see all this in action within the Exodus story. I believe it was helpful and wanted to share what I found with you. So the question I posed to myself was, how do we see the promises of 1 Peter 5.10, the verse we've been reading in the book of Exodus? And if you don't know the story of Exodus, I'll try and recap it as best as I can as we go. But it's well worth spending the time reading this book of the Bible and seeing how God moved among his people. So firstly, how do we see God restore in the book of Exodus? How do we see God restore in the book of Exodus? The book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, it ends with Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, living as the second most important person in Egypt. At that time, Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth. And as Abraham's descendant, it was understood that Joseph and his 11 brothers would carry on and be used by God to fulfill his promises. The promises that were made to Abraham, his descendants would continue. There's then a gap of around 400 years between Genesis and the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And this is how the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, begins. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. When the Red Sea was parted in two and the nation walked through on dry ground, the freedom that was stolen, God gave it back. That's God being restorative. That's restoring. What was stolen, what was lost, was given back. In 1993, the first prisoner in the United States was released because DNA evidence was able to clear his name. After nine years in prison, the freedom that he should have had was given back to him. Since 1993, I've learned this week, there have been 375 people exonerated due to DNA evidence and the new technology available. I saw a video from a courtroom recently of one of these people who was released when their innocence was proven undeniably. The overwhelming emotions from this guy stuck with me. His freedom was stolen. And when it was given back, the relief and the joy, it was very moving to watch. And now try and imagine that response from a whole nation of people. The word restoration, the first time it's used in the Greek, uh, in the New Testament, is when Jesus called Simon and Andrew to follow him. They were busy mending their nets, or based on the original Greek, we could say they were restoring their nets. To restore or to repair is to prepare for a purpose. 
In essence, restoration is tied to a purpose. Israel, God's chosen people, they had a purpose. They had a mission. Genesis 12, this is God making some of these initial first promises to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. This promise continues into the book of Exodus 9.16. But I have spared you for a purpose, to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. Later on in the book, the Lord replied, listen, I'm making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that you have never been performed anywhere in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. Israel were God's chosen people, and they were chosen for a purpose, to spread his fame throughout the whole world. God's people were called to holiness for a purpose. God set up a system of worship and sacrifices for a purpose. He inspired people to write the Hebrew scriptures for a purpose. He sent his prophets to correct his people when they went astray for a purpose. All the families on earth will be blessed through you to spread my fame throughout the earth so that all the people around you will see the power of the Lord. Restored and repaired is to fulfill their intended purposes. Simon and Peter... They left the nets and became fishers of men. The woman at the well, when she was restored, when she was repaired, she was given a purpose and she left and told the whole village about Jesus. Paul, when he was restored, he spent his life telling the known world about the Savior. The gospel writers, they were inspired and they had a purpose to pen the most widely read or heard words in all of human history. And each and every believer is called and is called to be a part of the Great Commission. And each and every single believer is a part of God's restoration. Restoration is tied to a purpose. Second thing, how do we see God strengthen in the book of Exodus? Now, if I kept searching, I could probably find more, but I found four. Four ways God strengthens his people in the book of Exodus. Firstly, he gave the Ten Commandments, which gives direction. He gave the pillar of cloud uh, by day and the pillar of fire by night, which gives guidance. He gave them the tabernacle, which gave them his presence. And he provided manna, which gives them provision. In the book of Exodus, we see God giving them direction, guidance, his presence, and provision. And all of these things strengthened the nation of Israel. All of these things strengthened God's people. The Ten Commandments. As a culture, we don't like the idea of God being a rule giver. We don't want commandments and direction. But surely it's a source of strength. The problems of sin, the problems of not adhering to the Ten Commandments are self-evident. Lying obviously causes problems and weakens the trust people has for us. Stealing obviously causes problems. Same with murder, adultery, idolatry, living in envy. And all of the Ten Commandments, it's obvious to see how ignoring them weakens us. It's easy to see how ignoring the Ten Commandments weakens our relationships. It weakens our standing in the community. It weakens our self-esteem. It weakens our future prospects. We may not like to be God to be a rule giver, but God giving the people of Israel the Ten Commandments undeniably strengthened them. We also see the pillar of cloud or fire. That gives guidance to God's people. The pillar of cloud by day or pillar of fire by night was there all the time. The people were to move when they saw the pillar move. If the pillar stayed put, they stayed put. This meant that whenever they moved, they could move with confidence. 
No double guessing whether they were going the right way. No doubts about whether this was indeed God's will. They had God's guidance and a confidence came with that and that confidence surely strengthened his people. They also had the tabernacle, meaning that they had the ability to live in God's presence. New Testament believers know that God's manifest presence is known and felt all over the globe. In the Old Testament, God typically chose for his manifest presence to dwell in a single location, in the tabernacle and later into the temple. In the book of Exodus, God's people were able to engage and embrace God's presence. They had the chance to worship and be a part of the sacrifices that God set up, and they were able to experience his presence. And it's God's presence that ministers to the soul. It was God's presence that set them apart from all the other nations. It was God's presence that confirmed his promise and revived those who were suffering and hurting. The psalmist wrote that one day in God's courts, one day in the tabernacle or temple, just one day in his presence was better than a thousand days anywhere else. It was a source of strength. We also see that God provided manna. He gave them provision. After the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and they began traveling through the wilderness, the people started freaking out about what they were going to eat. The panic was enough to cause some people to regret ever leaving Egypt. In response, every day God would provide a bread-like substance called manna. When Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, he appears to be calling back to this period of time. God strengthened in the book of Exodus by providing for his people. We are weaker without God's direction, guidance, presence, and provision. And God has promised to strengthen us. And if that was missing, we would all feel it. Without God's direction, we are weaker. We'll be trying to figure out how to conduct ourselves, trusting our own instincts and feelings, hoping that our flaws and selfishness and impulsivity doesn't get the better of us. Without God's guidance, we are weaker. Life is comprised of so many choices, many small and seemingly insignificant. Others are obviously life-changing, and others are life-changing we would never even notice. The Israelites may have had the pillars of cloud and fire, and we have prayer. We, can't wait. we can wait before making decisions, and we can pray and seek the Lord, or we're just trying to figure it out and hope that we don't mess it up. Without God's presence, we are weaker. God's presence is more than a fuzzy feeling. It's God's empowerment. It's his refreshing for our souls. God's presence builds a sense of peace in our lives. Without God's presence, we get tired and worn out, not physically, but in our very soul. In God's presence, we find rest. Without God's provision, we are weaker. God's means of provision are really predictable, but I've seen God come through time and time again for me and Megan. I've heard countless stories from people of God providing, sometimes in dramatic ways, sometimes in mundane, unimpressive ways, but God provides for his people. Four ways God strengthens his people in Exodus. The Ten Commandments gives direction. The pillar of cloud of fire gives guidance. The tabernacle gives his presence. And the manna shows his provision. Third thing, how do we see God's support in the book of Exodus? Now, there are a lot of ways we could think about this, but what I thought about was important to draw our attention to and for us to consider today is that God supports by sending people. God supports by sending people. Four ways God supports by sending people in the book of Exodus. He sent Aaron, who supported Moses through insecurities. He sent Jethro, who supported with much needed wisdom. He sent Joshua and Caleb, who supported in the battle. He sent Bezalel and Oholiab, who supported the community with expertise. Aaron, he supported Moses in his insecurities. Moses was terrified to speak to the Israelite leaders and Pharaoh, so God paired him up with his brother Aaron to speak on his behalf. Jethro supported with needed wisdom. 
Moses was burning himself out, trying to help everyone figure out how to conduct themselves. And Jethro comes and gives him some much needed wisdom about spreading the load and delegating to trusted people. Joshua and Caleb supported in the battle. When the Israelites fought the Amalekites, it was Joshua who led the fighting. Later on, it was Joshua and Caleb who went in to spy the land. When it was time for a fight, God provided the people who could lead the charge. And Bezalel and Oholiab supported the community with expertise. When it was time to build the tabernacle, God provided two experts. Bezalel and Oholiab were exquisite in craftsmanship, and they were to teach others. Without them, the task of completing the tabernacle would have been very difficult. God supports by sending people. We need each other. We need each other's strengths, and we need to learn from each other's experiences. Now, if you're older than me, I'm looking at you, Mike Chiz. If you're older than me, the younger people among us need your wisdom. The younger people among us need to learn from your mistakes so they don't make the same ones. Maybe you caring and sharing with the younger members of the church will save some pain and some hurts. If you're younger than me, we need your energy and passion. Church isn't the place to come and calm down. Church is the place to come and get fired up. If you've been a Christian for decades, we need you to talk to those who are young in faith and help people undo the lies of the world and embrace the truth about Jesus. If you're new to faith, we need you to teach us boring churchy types what it's like out there. We need to listen and learn about the hurts and fear and frustrations that people are feeling. In a very common Bible dictionary, the Strong's Dictionary, the word for strength is stenos. And it means to properly make strong so as to be mobile, i.e., able to move in a way that achieves something in the most effective way. The strength is to be able to achieve something. For the church to operate as we should, we need each other. Is God building us as a collection of individuals or is he building a community? When I hear people talk about how much they love Jesus but they don't like the church or they don't need the church, I think to myself and I've even said to people at times, you say you love Jesus but you're rejecting what he said he would build. My friends, don't let your involvement in church be about breezing in and breezing out. If you're not here for a few weeks, someone should notice. There should be people here that know your name. I sincerely hope that you find people in the church who are some of the people you call when life is tough. That in the church, there are people that you look forward to being with, people that are a joy to be around. And this verse from Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We can't live out this verse if we think church is something that we attend rather than somewhere where we belong and we are a meaningful part of. You are not a number. You are not a pew filler. You are a valued part of this community and you should see yourself that way. If one person claps, we all have to. <clears throat> number four, how do we see God establish in the book of Exodus. He fulfilled and is fulfilling his promises. That's how we see him established in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, God's promise is fulfilled when he leads a nation out of slavery. And we see his promises are still being fulfilled as they continue the journey towards the promised land. It would be another 40 years until the Israelites would reach the promised land, but they were free and they were established in God's promises. You may remember that I spent a little more time on this a few weeks ago, but a consistent promise of the Bible is I will be their God and they will be my people. And this is all throughout the Bible. A few examples. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is God speaking to Abraham again. 
This is an everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your ancestors after you. Into Exodus, I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. And into Leviticus, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is now the reality of God's people in the book of Exodus. They are living with God as their God and they are living as his people. They are living established. And to quote our verse from Peter, they are placed on a firm foundation. They are placed and established in the promises of God. Not only the promise that's obviously been kept and that the ocean was parted into in front of them, but also in the promises that are presently being fulfilled. They had walked through the ocean and now they had the promise of a new home and a promised land ahead of them. Now, if you know the story of the book of Exodus, you know that it was a bumpy journey, but God got his people there. He fulfilled his promises. A part of living in God's promise and clearly seen in Exodus is that God speaks. He speaks through his word. He speaks prophetically through people. He speaks audibly and he speaks at a gut level in our spirit. God is not hiding the ball. We are established in his promises and we are established by hearing his word and his teaching. Jesus echoes this sentiment as he closes the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Anyone who is established in my teaching a solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the wind beats against that house, it won't collapse because it is built, it is established on bedrock. It is established and built on me. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand, when the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Jesus gives us a solid foundation to build our lives on. We can be established in him. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords, and the Savior of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, and the only one worthy of building our lives on. How do we see God restoring the book of Exodus? When the Red Sea was parted in two, and they walked through the ocean on dry ground, the freedom that was stolen, God gave it back. Restoration is tied to a promise, and the Israelites were to show the world God's goodness and his power. How do we see God strengthened in the book of Exodus? Where well, he sees the Ten Commandments giving the people direction, the pillar of cloud or fire giving guidance, the tabernacle giving his presence, manna showing God's provision. We are weaker without God's direction, guidance, presence, and provision. How do we see God's support in the book of Exodus? God supports by sending people. Just like he gave Aaron, who supported Moses through his insecurities. He gave Jethro, who supported Moses with much needed wisdom. He gave Joshua and Caleb, who gave support in the battle. Bezalel and Oholiab supported the community with their expertise. And how do we see God established in the book of Exodus? We find our firm foundation in his promises, both the ones we have seen realized and the ones we are seeing being fulfilled in front of our very eyes. We value his voice above all others, and we build our life on his teaching and on our relationship with him. And I don't know anyone who doesn't need to hear this. I can't imagine how this would be irrelevant to someone. This should inspire hope and bring people to repentance. A desire to leave behind whatever has been destroying their lives. This is the greatest news the world will ever hear. That he will restore, he will support, he will strengthen, and he will establish. And this is consistent with God's character and is consistent with his promise throughout the whole Bible. Not just First Peter or from the book of Exodus. We see the promise to restore in Joel. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. 
We see support in the Psalms that God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. We see strength in 2 Corinthians. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so the power of Christ can work through me. We see him establish in Deuteronomy, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And you and I, if we decided to search through the Bible, we could definitely come up with a whole list of verses we could share for each one of these four categories. First Peter 5.10, in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. And then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. I've got a couple of questions for you. If you're in the habit of writing these down, I would suggest you do so. Something to think about and consider this week. But what difference would God's restoration, support, strength, and establishing make in your life? What difference would God's restoration, support, strength, and establishing make in your life? What's been lost? Where are you feeling weak? Where are you unsettled? What difference would it make? The second thing I put to you is how does God use us to help others find rest for their souls? How does God use us to help others find rest for their souls? This is Jesus' invitation. This is his promise. And how is God going to use us to help people respond well to that invitation? I invite everyone here to stand with me. We're going to go back into a time of worship in just a moment. I'd like to read a portion of Psalm 116 as we get ready to go back into a time of worship. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my prayer for mercy. Because He bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. Death wrapped its ropes around me. The terrors of the grave overtook me. I saw only trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Please, God, save me. How kind the Lord is, how good He is. So merciful, this God of ours. The Lord protects those of childlike faith. I was facing death and He saved me. Let my soul be at rest again, for the Lord has done good to me. He has saved me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And so I walk in the Lord's presence as I live here on earth. My hope is that this psalm describes your life that this psalm describes your experience and your story, and that the promise of God restoring, supporting, strengthening, and establishing is not just a theory, but this is what you see at work in your life, that through all of this, you find rest for your soul, that the people you care about find rest for their soul, and that each and every hurting person who is ready to have their life changed by the message of Jesus finds true, authentic rest for their soul. Lord, please take something from today and use it to grab a hold of every single heart here. 
Lord, use this to teach us, to show us a different way, Lord, to lead us to a point where we're ready to follow you with everything. Lord, for anyone here that needs restoration, for anyone here that needs support or strength, for anyone here, Lord, that needs to be established in your promises, I pray they would leave here with a renewed sense that you are at work in the life, that you personally are directly involved in bringing about your plans and purposes in their life. Lord, we love you. We trust you. Holy Spirit, fill this room as we take time to worship and devote ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, everyone, let's spend some time in worship together.